It's impossible to talk about Arlington National Cemetery without talking about John F. Kennedy. His assassination not only changed the history of the United States, but very profoundly changed the history of Arlington National Cemetery. His gravesite, one of the most visited locations within Arlington National Cemetery, was not only a draw because of the enigmatic life of the president, the tragic way he died, but also because of an exceptional piece of design executed by his close personal friend, the architect John Carl Warnecke. In many ways, it was an effort that was undertaken by the nation with hundreds of people consulted on the design and drawn into it. Today, I discuss the impact of the Kennedy gravesite on Arlington, not just its history, but more importantly, its popularity. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. So certainly, if you are a longtime listener, if you have uh, endured since the early days of the podcast almost two years ago, you know that I have done a significant amount of research into JFK and his gravesite at Arlington. Um... This was research that started shortly after I moved to Atlanta in 2018, and I found the deadline fast approaching for the Association for Gravestone Studies Conference, and I knew I didn't have a whole lot of time. As a result, I picked a topic that I thought was going to be very easy to research. And this is not something that's particularly proud or easy for me to admit as a cemetery researcher, but that's why I picked it. And what I produced was not only a surprise to me, but very, very popular with everyone who heard it. Certainly, the Kennedys cannot be overstated in terms of just their mystique within the consciousness of the American landscape. The tragedy, obviously, that surrounds the family also elevates them to another level. I would argue that much of Arlington's history aside, the reason that Arlington continues to be so popular and the reason that most people know Arlington today has less to do with the Tomb of the Unknowns, has less to do with the Memorial Amphitheater, has less to do with the Lee connections, as it does with JFK. As a cultural touchstone, the Kennedy assassination for several generations of Americans, um, but particularly for the baby boomers, is a watershed moment. And I think that particularly when you see record numbers of World War II dead being buried in Arlington. A lot of that was controlled by the fact that JFK himself was a veteran of the Second World War, was in many ways part of the embodiment of the greatest generation. I, th- I don't think that you can overstate the fact that Arlington became exponentially more popular as a burial spot after JFK was buried there. And certainly the idea of celebrity burials is not a new one. I have talked about how many rural cemeteries increased their popularity through the burial of significant figures. Even Père Lachaise in Paris, which was the inspiration for Mount Auburn, uh, had the remains of Abelard and Eloise moved there. 
often these are people who have no association with the cemetery whatsoever. As I will go into, as I kind of give you my research, that's not the case with JFK. In fact, it's a pretty good story. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you the published paper that I did on this topic. And I will say that this is a little bit of a cheat, but I recently reread it. Uh, I had sent it to somebody who asked to read it. And I hadn't read it in probably two years. And I was pleasantly surprised by the quality of the research. I don't hate it, (laughs) which is not something I say often about my own work because I am my own biggest critic always. It's a solid piece of research. It's very interesting. I would love to see John Carl Warnecke be better known as a household name in architecture. Um, One of my regrets was one of the few things that I didn't get to do when I was in Hawaii was to go downtown and see the state capitol there, which was also designed by Warnecke. Unfortunately, today he is only known for the JFK gravesite, but he's really one of the great prolific architects of the 20th century here in the United States. And sadly, is not remembered for much other than the JFK gravesite. And I would say the majority of people don't even know he designed that. And that's one of my big pet peeves. And it's one of the things I always try to correct, especially as an architectural historian, is the fact that gravesite design is something that is very specific. So when I talked about Dr. King, when I talk about JFK, and I talk about these gravesites that are so often visited, I think it's important to talk about the architects. Because architecture and cemeteries are inherently linked. And it, and while it's not something that we talk about a lot, it's something that I think really should be. And granted, I may be biased as an architectural historian, but the same way that an engineer who is building a bridge or who is building uh, any kind of structure has to think about materials, the same is true of cemeteries. Having just done a month looking into cemeteries, all of these things are very important to think about. And every consideration that was made when it came to the Kennedy grave site was not only considering the character of the individual built there, but the character in relation to the nation. And most importantly, in terms of making that grave site something that was accessible by everyone. This is something that often when I am critical of memorialization, it's because I don't think that there is a level of thoughtfulness that goes into it. This example is anything but. So you will bear with me. Um, I'm not going to go too much into the history of Kennedy himself, but I am going to go a little bit into my thought process after that and talk about some of the larger things that I think need to be considered based on the research that I've done. So without further ado, primus inter pares, the character defining contextual design of the John F. Kennedy gravesite. There was a sound of laughter in a moment. It was no more. A piece of each of us died at that moment. Yet in death, he gave himself to us. He gave us of a good heart from which the laughter came. He gave us of a profound wit from which great leadership emerged. He gave us of a kindness and a strength fused into human courage to seek peace without fear. 
that is from the eulogy delivered in the rotunda of the Capitol on November 24th, 1963, issued by the Honorable Mike Mansfield, who was a senator from Montana. The assassination of John F. Kennedy on November 22nd, 1963, was a watershed moment in the history of the 20th century. The sudden and violent end to the life of the young, handsome, and popular American president cast the entire country into three days of public mourning. The trappings of the so-called American Camelot had fascinated the public since Kennedy was first elected to Congress more than a decade before. The enigmatic Irish Catholic man from Boston with his beautiful and sophisticated socialite wife and adorable young children embodied the modern American dream. Kennedy truly was a contemporary manifestation of the ancient concept used to define those who served their fellow man. Primus inter pares, a first among equals. The loss of Kennedy, as expressed in the eulogy above given by Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield in the rotunda of the Capitol, while Kennedy lay in state, was a profound injury to all Americans. It is unsurprising, then, that the gravesite of John F. Kennedy would be unlike the grave of any American president who came before him, and the subject of much attention and pilgrimage for a nation still consumed by truth. The design, executed over a period of five years by the noted American architect John Carl Warnecke, is in many ways an embodiment of the fallen president. Deceptively simple, the design is a delicate balance of a modern American aesthetic married with the conceptual mores reaching to America's foundations. Warnecke himself, in the conclusion of his plan for the grave site, stated, quote, This particular hillside, this flame, this man, and this point in history must be synthesized in one statement that has a distinctive character of its own. We must avoid adding elements that in later decades might detract from the deeds of the man. The gravesite to the casual viewer fails to communicate the five arduous years of research, planning, review, and construction that would eventually produce it. While the gravesite would become the crown jewel in Warnecke's almost 60-year career in architecture, it is far from his only one. The gravesite is one of the 20th century's finest examples of a successful marriage of a patron's desires and the architect's vision, executed in the impossibly bright spotlight of the scrutiny of an entire nation. Warnecke, known for his fervent adherence to contextualism, created in the John F. Kennedy gravesite a unique architectural design that at once acknowledges the context of both the immediate setting of Arlington National Cemetery and the context of Kennedy's native New England. This design accomplishes in a single grave site the resolution of the character of a complex and larger-than-life public figure into a pure expression that would be understood by all and continues to resonate with those who visit it today. Almost from the moment of Kennedy's death, his widow, Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy, had very specific ideas regarding his funeral. The three days following the assassination would become a period of national shock and grief. The fallen president's final journey would be planned down to the most minute detail, closely mirroring that of another assassinated president, Abraham Lincoln. Though the smallest details were considered, 
from the amount of black crepe on display to the color of the horses that would pull the funeral cortege. One key aspect had not been decided. Where would the president be buried? Tradition dictated that American presidents, whether they died in office or long after, were returned and buried in their native soil. William Howard Taft stood as the only exception to the rule. He was buried at Arlington National Cemetery following his death in 1930. Taft died 17 years after leaving the presidency. In the interim, he served as the 10th Chief Justice of the Supreme Court for nine years prior to his death. His burial at Arlington National Cemetery was in keeping with the tradition of the internment for chief justices, as opposed to any national honor linked with his term as president. The initial plan of the Kennedy family was that their son would be returned to Massachusetts to be buried in the Kennedy family lot at Holyhood Cemetery in Brookline, beside his son Patrick. Patrick had died four months before the president, just a few days after birth. Mrs. Kennedy had also given birth to a stillborn daughter in 1956, who was buried in Newport, Rhode Island. Mrs. Kennedy, upon reading that President Lincoln's beloved son, Willie, who had died of typhoid fever at the age of 11 in 1862, was moved to rest behind his father, felt strongly that President Kennedy should also lie beside his children. The issue of whether or not a small cemetery like Holyhood could accommodate the projected pilgrimage to the president's grave was also an important immediate consideration. Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, was the first to suggest the alternative of Arlington National Cemetery. Charles Bartlett, journalist and Kennedy's close friend, quickly seconded the suggestion. The notion of Arlington as a burial place was, was supported by the now prophetic tale of the impromptu trip that Kennedy and Bartlett had taken to Arlington. They were led on a tour of the Lee Custis Mansion and part of the grounds by a young park ranger named Paul Fuqua. Before leaving, Bartlett, both Kennedy's longtime friend and a fellow Roman Catholic, broached the inevitable subject of where Kennedy expected to be buried. Kennedy said dismissively that he assumed it would be somewhere in Massachusetts, hopefully on his beloved Cape Cod. In the same conversation, however, he expressed his admiration again for the unparalleled views from where they stood, looking across the Potomac and down the National Mall towards the Lincoln Memorial. He then remarked, his mind on the view rather than the grave, I could stay here forever. Though, in light of the assassination, these words take on the shades of Julius Caesar and the soothsayer, they did help put an alternative in the minds of those making the funeral arrangements, primarily Kennedy's siblings. Alerted to the possibility of Kennedy's burial at Arlington, John Metzler, the superintendent of the cemetery, set out in the rain on the morning following the assassination to consider possible locations. The slope below the Lee Custis mansion the very view Kennedy had admired was, of course, one of the possibilities. The other two were selected for their naval associations to honor the president's service in the Pacific Theater of World War II. Side note, I'm breaking from the text here to say that one of them was very close to the memorial to the Maine, which I mentioned two episodes ago. The other one, and I don't remember exactly where it was, but it was closer to um, some of the Arctic explorers that are buried in Arlington. So they were both boat-related. 
This selection of sites seems by all accounts to have been largely an empty exercise, as the final location of the gravesite was the immediate choice when the president's siblings and Mrs. Kennedy were shown the three options. Jackie Kennedy, unlike her husband, had no ties to Massachusetts, and this perhaps made it far easier to dismiss burial in the local family lot. Later, she said of her decision to Kennedy historian Ted Sorensen, quote, he belongs to the nation now. Burial in Arlington would indeed make the president accessible to millions in a public place convenient to the nation's capital. The chosen location's perfect alignment with the Lincoln Memorial also played an enormous role. This alignment would be one of only a handful of unwavering details in the design that were carried through from the earliest stages of planning until the final execution of the gravesite. The Arlington Memorial Bridge, in Candy's mind, was more than a physical bridge, but also a philosophical one. An access upon which bridge differences and reunited the divided North, represented by the Lincoln Memorial, and the South, represented by the, Lincoln, the Lee Mansion, could be reunited. A site of physical and symbolic beauty chosen for the president's resting place, the funeral went as planned, and the president was buried in a temporary grave on November 25, 1963. The gravesite was surrounded by a plain wooden picket fence with gravel walkways for visitors. The temporary grave site immediately became a place of pilgrimage, with approximately 5,000 visitors on weekends and over 25,000 on weekends. In the month preceding Easter 1964, these numbers rose to 25,000 per day. The gravel walkways had to be replenished weekly as, as visitors were taking pebbles home as mementos of their pilgrimage. Metzler reported that in the first year following the assassination, the number of visitors to Arlington had risen to 7.5 million and showed no signs of abating. The need for a permanent grave site designed to handle such volumes was more pressing than ever. Warnecke was almost immediately suggested as the designer of the permanent grave site, visiting the temporary grave with Jacqueline and Robert Kennedy just three days after the funeral. Warnecke's friendship with the young John F. Kennedy had started over 20 years before, when Kennedy had briefly enrolled at Stanford in 1940 after being rejected from officer training school. The two men struck up a casual friendship over football. Warnecke graduated in 1941 and went on to Harvard for his graduate degree, while Kennedy, after a year of training to strengthen his lower back, joined the Naval Reserves. Over the next decade and a half, the two would see each other sporadically, as Kennedy made a name in politics while Warnecke grew to be the owner of a successful architectural firm. The visits were few and casual, generally only occurring when Kennedy passed through California on his various campaigns. By the early 1960s, Warnecke had expanded his architecture practice from his native San Francisco to New York and Washington, D.C., while in Washington in 1962, Warnecke was invited by Paul Red Fay, Undersecretary of the Navy, to a party at the White House. In the course of the evening, Kennedy turned to Fay, saying, quote, What does old Rose Bowl do for a living? Um, just a note, uh, that was his nickname, Warnecke, because of his success and 
the very spectacular win that Stanford made the year he played in the Rose Bowl. These are all footnotes, something that you obviously can't say. Upon hearing that Warnacki was an architect, Kennedy invited his friend to return the following day to discuss his concerns regarding Lafayette Square. Lafayette Square, which lies directly behind the White House, was the subject of major redevelopment plans in 1962. These plans called for the demolition of a number of federal-era townhouses to make way for a block of contemporary government office buildings. The President and Mrs. Kennedy had made preservation, restoration, and design a priority since taking office the year before. They were concerned about not just the aesthetics of the project, but that it would set a precedent for the demolition of historic properties across Washington, D.C. Warnecke, familiar with both the design challenges and bureaucracy of Washington, tactfully made several suggestions about how the proposed project could be altered to make it more aesthetically pleasing and do less damage to the historic properties, and was almost immediately commissioned later that day to complete the project himself. The $30 million Lafayette Square redesign project was a watershed moment in Warnecke's professional life and would dictate the trajectory of his career for the next six years. Lafayette Square set a precedent for an excellent working and later romantic relationship between John Carl Warnecke and Jacqueline Kennedy. Mrs. Kennedy, as much as Warnecke, contributed to the design of her husband's gravesite. Though she had no initial design in mind, she set the overall guidelines for the site and was the final vote in many decisions. The abundant correspondence that exists between the two shows a mutual passion for good design and thoughtful discourse on a wide range of subjects related to art and design. The first and most important guideline for the site was that it was a grave site. The final product was not meant to be a memorial or a monument, but rather the place of repose for the president's mortal remains. As such, the gravesite was to be a place of silence, prayer, and reflection. This would dictate many later decisions, such as the prohibition of laying memorial items and even a ruling against benches being incorporated into the design. Mrs. Candy expressed the opinion that the grave was a place of prayer, and the proper posture for prayer was kneeling, not sitting. The Kennedy gravesite would exist outside the rules that both regulated and unified the appearance of Arlington Cemetery in general. One of the first things Robert Kennedy did following the selection of the gravesite at Arlington was to ensure that the lot in which the president was buried was under the jurisdiction of the army, allowing greater freedom in terms of how the lot was designed and maintained. Mrs. Kennedy's preferences are evident in the design today when compared with other areas of Arlington. The core idea of the gravesite, as opposed to a memorial, dictated that the design would harken back to an earlier age. This, in many ways, linked Kennedy's origins in Massachusetts and the early Puritan attitudes towards death and dying. The central placement of burial grounds within Puritan society was closely linked with the idea that the burial ground was a memento mori, a tangible reminder of man's own mortality. Likewise, the central location of the Puritan burial grounds was one of accessibility and convenience in a new world that was still largely wilderness. The accessibility of the president's grave was a factor to be considered. The two previously assassinated presidents, Abraham Lincoln and William McKinley, had elaborate national mourning associated with their passing, particularly as both presidents were returned to their home states 
Illinois, and Ohio, respectively, by funeral train. Kennedy, flown home from Dallas, would have no long journey by plane, so the mourners, now primarily watching on television, would have to come to him. While John F. Kennedy did not share this Puritan mindset from a religious perspective, Roman Catholicism also has a deep tradition of memento mori. Pilgrimage and devotion are central to the Catholic idea of communion of saints and intercessionary prayer. Saints can act as intermediaries in prayer and devotions, and pilgrimages to see relics and mortal remains of saints are a key Roman Catholic practice. To create a gravesite that was a place of prayer, reflection, and inspiration was very much in keeping with the core religious beliefs that acted as the bedrock of the Kennedy family. Warnacki spent the first three months of the project doing intensive research into the history of burial places, trends in funerary design, art, and historical precedent for the tombs of leaders, and finally a careful study of every deceased American president to that date. This research was presented in two parts, totaling 86 pages on January 31st and February 3rd of 1964. Warnecki would synthesize his research into a general design rather quickly and produce both a one-eighth scale model as well as commissioning renderings by the artist Olaf Dahlstrand. By May 1964, the general plan for the gravesite had taken shape. The design of the Kennedy gravesite involves three major parts, the elliptical approach and mound, the plaza, and the grave itself. The core design retains all three of these parts, with the only significant changes being to the grave itself. The elliptical approach curves around the gentle mound of earth set at its center. This allowed for the center of the axis between the Kennedy gravesite and the Lincoln Memorial to remain unobscured, as well as controlling the flow of visitors to the plaza above. Warnecke felt very strongly that waiting to see the grave should be part of the experience. The elliptical approach acted as a contemplative arrival, similar to the medieval practice of making a symbolic pilgrimage by walking the labyrinth in places like Shark Cathedral. This gradual entryway also allowed for the design to be executed without excessive grading of the hill, which Warnecke saw as detrimental to the overall aesthetics of the setting. An illustration of his contextual sensibility in regards to the landscape of Arlington. In his report, Warnecke stated, quote, There is a need for unity, a need for the grave to relate to all parts of its surroundings. The entire grave complex of walks, force space, approaches, place of arrival, and the sanctuary of the actual grave should be so integrated that it possesses and unifies the entire site in a strong and positive way yet also in a way that is subtle and respects the beautiful quality of the hill. When the grave is completed, it should be said that the hill is more beautiful than it ever was before. Above the elliptical approach was an oval plaza with low stone walls. This plaza was a necessary gathering place. It could handle the increasing crowds flocking to see the president's grave. This is where Warnecke would employ his most durable material, granite. The plaza would consist of 1,500 individual stones, arranged in blocks cut to form a radiating pattern. The plaza, like the approach before it, would be a place of quiet meditation, 
with quotes from John F. Kennedy's inaugural address carved into the walls. Arthur Schlesinger, the unofficial court historian of the Kennedy administration, suggested that the plaza might be the perfect location for these words. Several quotations were selected for this spot that reflected the vision of America portrayed by President Kennedy at the outset of his administration. More than 40 individuals, in addition to Schlesinger, including family, friends, architects, artists, sculptors, clergy, art critics, politicians, were all consulted when the initial plans were finalized in 1964. Their comments add some of the richest insights into both Warnecke and Mrs. Kennedy's vision for the gravesite, and how it evolved over a four-year period. Much of the commentary is complimentary, however, some was not. As many mourners of President Kennedy shared individual opinions about the best way to memorialize him. These are all preserved today in the collections of the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library. In his feedback to the gravesite design, art critic Wolf von Eckhart stated that the Trajan letter form was the absolute best in the world and must be used. This was a variation of the Capitalis Monumentalis, or Roman square capitals, which graced the base of Trajan's column in Rome. Early in the design process, Janet Auschenkloss, Jacqueline Kennedy's mother, had suggested using John Everett Benson as the carver of the stone at the gravesite. Benson, owner of the John Stevens shop in Newport, Rhode Island, was the latest craftsman in a stone carving business dating back to 1705. Benson and his shop were well known for using the tradition of hand lettering in classical letter forms like the Trajan font. His design for the lettering, which would be used on the inaugural quotes as well as the slate stones above the candy graves, utilized the requested square capital forms. The carved inscriptions were both executed by John Everett Benson on the original grave site, as well as recarved in 2012 after a half a century of wear. The grave itself was accessed by three sets of marble steps to a raised bed of grass lawn, which would encompass the grave markers. The grave markers themselves would be flat, ledger-style stones, in the style of the traditional New England grave. The eternal flame would remain as the central focal point of the gravesite, set in a modern triangular bronze brazier, symbolizing the central Roman Catholic theme of the Holy Trinity. The three primary materials chosen for the gravesite were an enormous factor in establishing its dual contextualism. They were simultaneously fitting due to their comparable materiality to the existing monuments of Arlington and because of their New England origins. While Kennedy might lie in the soil of Arlington, far from the land of his birth, he would literally be approached and covered in stone drawn from the soil of New England. The approach, as well as the three sets of shallow steps in front of the gravesite, were to be constructed of white marble from the Vermont Marble Company in Proctor, Vermont. White marble was by far the most traditional material chosen as it not only made up most of Arlington's grave markers, but much of Washington, D.C. Mrs. Kennedy was leery of using marble, which she saw as ostentatious. She asked that the polish be taken off all of the marble used, and that only be strategically placed in areas that were muted by other materials, such as grass lawn. 
The granite for the plaza field stones and walls was hand-selected by Jacqueline Kennedy from samples provided by Warnecke. Her final choice was a stone quarried by the Deer Island Granite Company on Crotch Island, near Stonington, Maine. Annette Larrabee Jones, daughter of stonemason Keith Larrabee, said that this was the highest honor as, quote, the lady had great taste. Once quarried, the granite was shaped in Stonington before being transported by truck to the gravesite, where the men who quarried it also installed the stone. Each of the stonecutters and masons involved with the project was given a small cube of the granite, which was used, embedded with a Kennedy half dollar, as a souvenir of their service to the fallen president. A distinctive black slate from Monson, Maine, was selected for the ledger stones that would mark the graves of John F. Kennedy and his children. Slate was the traditional headstone material of choice in Old New England. The distinctive tympanum stones, which can be found in colonial graveyards across the region, feature elaborate carvings that maintain their integrity even after hundreds of years. The somber black slate was perhaps the closest tie with the actual burial traditions of New England and would be key in shaping the design of the gravesite itself, as all of the other materials selected must, by necessity, complement the color and style of this critical choice. The eternal flame was the one element that Mrs. Kennedy was absolutely adamant about including, even before her husband's burial site was selected. The idea was inspired by the eternal flame at the tomb of the unknown soldier beneath the Arc de Triomphe, which she and the president had visited on a diplomatic trip to Paris. On Sunday, November 24th, Mrs. Kennedy requested that an eternal flame be president for her husband's funeral the following day. This hastily assembled flame was far from beautiful or eternal, being simply a dime store tiki torch welded onto a metal basket, fed by a grass tank hidden in nearby bushes. Warnecke's initial design called for a more modern version of the bronze brazier found at the French Tomb of the Unknown. In this sense, the flame would be presented in a contemporary version of a classical form. This plan, along with the layout of the gravesite itself, would change significantly over time, due to the discovery of a remarkable alternative to house the flame. Bunny Mellon, a close Kennedy friend and also an amateur landscape architect who redesigned the Rose Garden, sent a load of granite to Robert Kennedy's home in McLean, Virginia, in the spring of 1967 for Warnecke. In her notes on the materials, she explained their origin. Mrs. Kennedy was a frequent visitor to the antique shops along Route 28A on Cape Cod. On one of her visits to a shop called the Antiquarian in Falmouth, she was struck by a beautiful piece of pink granite set in the doorway and asked the owner, O.D. Garland, where she could find some just like it. Together, Garland and Dick Baker, owner of the nearby Baker Monument Company, scavenged pink granite from the foundations, chimneys, and stone walls of abandoned or demolished houses and barns nearby for Mrs. Kennedy over a period of four years, from 1964 to 1968. This stone, all of which had been quarried at least 150 years before, was very simply worked. This was one of the things that Mrs. Kennedy had advocated for in the design of her husband's gravesite, 
just as she wanted unpolished marble. She felt that there is a natural element that could only be found with certain types of material. A man who helped them source these stones also led them to a remarkable piece of pink granite nearby. The round stone was approximately five feet in diameter and was of the same variety of weathered granite as the previously scavenged stones, free from machine polishing or extensive cutting. Warnecki addressed his affinity for the material, which he saw before receiving Mellon's notes on them, in a letter dated March 13, 1967. Quote, the round, rough-hewn stone has a sort of ageless quality. It could be several thousand years old, and in its simplicity is an ideal solution for the base of the flame itself. I have lived with the flame as a design element for the better part of three years now, and I am thoroughly convinced nothing should compete with it. Every flame font or idea of holder or man-made object that has been tried by artists, sculptors, and craftsmen have only detracted from the simple beauty and power of the flame. Thus, the great old round stone, in its straightforward simplicity, couldn't be more perfect. The dimensions, shape, and carving technique evident on this piece of pink granite greatly resemble examples of mooring stones that could be found throughout New England. Moorings, or permanent anchorages, allowed sailors a place that they owned in the harbor. Today, they are secured with concrete. Historically, however, granite was used for these anchorages, some historians argue as far back as the Vikings. This stone, found on the shores of Falmouth, could very well have been a mooring stone that had washed ashore, long after it was abandoned. These materials associated with Cape Cod and President Kennedy's life and love of sailing provided the perfect contextual link to his native New England. The completion of the Tapestry of New England materials would fully capture both the President's personality and establish him eternally as a simple man of the people, primus inter pares. Despite the grand dimensions of his grave and the noteworthy location, these humble materials served as the key purpose of bridging the physical gap between Arlington and New England, as well as the ideological. The round granite stone was placed centrally in a network of granite field stones, with the three slate grave markers arranged in front of it. The grave site was completed with small amounts of greenery interspersed between the field stones. The species chosen were hardy ones, not prone to withering in the brutal heat the way that a traditional grassed lawn would. The varieties were also native to New England, including field grass fescue and the more symbolic clover. Better known as the trefoil or shamrock, clover was also used by St. Patrick as a metaphor for the Holy Trinity, providing a nod to President Kennedy's Irish Catholic heritage. The final material decisions completed, John F. Kennedy and his two deceased children were moved to their permanent resting places at the new gravesite at night after the cemetery was closed. The reburial was witnessed by the president's two brothers, Ed Cardinal Richard Cushing of Boston. The new grave was consecrated at 7 o'clock the next morning, and the final gravesite would be assembled and landscaped over the following weeks by Bunny Mellon who would take over the final design details after the end of Jacqueline Kennedy and John Carl Warnecke's relationship.
The slate markers would be rearranged in 1994 following Jacqueline Kennedy's death from cancer when she was buried alongside her late husband and children. Warnecki would lose his position as a Kennedy designer in the coming years. The commissions for the Robert F. Kennedy gravesite, 1969, and the future John F. Kennedy Memorial Library in Boston, built between 1977 and 1979, would both be awarded to the architect I.M. Pei. Despite another 40 successful years as an architect, designing a number of significant buildings, including the state capital of Hawaii, the campus of UC Santa Cruz, and the Hart Senate Office Building, John Carl Warnecke would be remembered foremost as the designer of the Kennedy gravesite. Indeed, when he died on April 17, 2010, the headline of his obituary in the New York Times read, John Carl Warnecke, designed Kennedy gravesite, dies at 91. Arlington as a backdrop is a challenge, given the grandeur and tradition that defines it. Contextualism as an architectural concept is key to the success of any design. As an architect, Warnecke cannot be pigeonholed neatly into any one type or style, because contextualism lies at the core of his philosophy of design. To have created a gravesite like Kennedy's, which is at once in communion with the challenging immediate surroundings of Arlington and the aesthetics of Old New England, is a particular type of triumph. Kennedy's friend Paul Fay wrote to Warnecke while the architect was designing the gravesite, saying, quote, I want to feel the spirit of the man and that he is still living. The end result of years of planning produced one of the iconic designs of the 20th century. It is distinctly that. The Kennedy gravesite is a living embodiment of the man. It is a grave that is simultaneously ancient and modern, historic and contemporary, classic, yet strikingly different. It lies in one of the most recognizable locations in the world, a cemetery known for its polished marbles and orderly lines. Yet, as a commenter noted in 1964, quote, it is indeed as though he were sleeping in the quiet hills of New England, from which he strode to Washington, lying in the commonality of death with all who have gone before him. The reason that the gravesite remains so compelling more than a half century later, after it was created, is best stated by Mrs. Kennedy in a letter to Warnecke, describing what she felt the grave should be. Quote, great men do not need huge tombs to show the world they were great. Rather, it is the other way around. Only tyrants build themselves monuments for after death. Pharaohs, shahs. In a democracy, the most enlightened form of government, the leader is one of the people and sets them an example by his simplicity. Our early presidents who planned their own graves, Washington and Jefferson, planned simple ones, not by accident or false modesty. Their graves state the passionate conviction of their lives. Okay, not bad. So that's the end. Um, <laughs> I feel like I needed a little bit more editing now that I've been forced to read that out loud. Um, I got a little hyperbolic at the end, but eh, I guess you can be passionate. It, uh, it was my first published article, so I can't criticize myself too much. It It's really hard because when I had initially presented it, I talked a lot more about the other alternatives that were considered 
But the problem with published papers is that you do have to pull things in. You have to make them as tight as possible. And so as a result, I don't feel like you get as much of the impression of the back and forth that happened. Um, I guess it depends on who you're looking at. Um, So Robert Kennedy definitely was the simplistic man. Uh, He, to all intents and purposes, hated John Carl Warnecke. Uh, I didn't get too much into it. It's in the footnotes of the paper. But uh, Warnecke, got to give him credit, uh, started dating Jacqueline Kennedy, even asked her to marry him uh, unsuccessfully. She would marry Aristotle Onassis. He invited her to stay with him in Hawaii. They spent a hot summer down there while he was designing the state capitol. Um, But I think at the end of the day, he just was not wealthy enough for her. But I think that was also part of the source of the animosity between him and Robert Kennedy. And then after Robert Kennedy's death, things really fell apart. Um, if, If you have been to Robert Kennedy's grave, you know, it is literally, it's a simple white cross. So he wanted that for his brother, and I think that there was enough dissent that that didn't happen. Um, If you look at um, Eunice Shriver, Eunice Shriver and her husband, Sarge, um, they, they were some of the most vocal advocates. They wanted something very traditional, very Catholic. They wanted like a Celtic cross. There was all of this debate about different pieces of like sculpture over time. I can literally say I spent probably a hundred hours. I read every single letter. Many of them are from people that you have never heard of. Many of them are from people where you're like, wow, they just randomly sent the Kennedy gravesite design to this person to weigh in on. You know, famous architects, artists, newspaper columnists, priests. Just some people I was just like, geez, it's weird that they picked that person. Like, and there's, there are some that you would expect people like, you know, Ted Sorensen and a lot of the people that I mentioned in the paper. And like I said, a lot were complimentary, but a lot of them had very strong ideas. Um, you know, the biggest criticism I would say is that I described the Kennedy gravestones as ledger stones. They're not really ledger stones. They are actually far closer to garden style headstones. So that's a mistake. They are ledger stones in the sense that they lie flat and flush with the ground. But um, that's criticism I can legitimately give myself. They, they are the size of garden-style markers. But overall, like I said, it's a decent piece of research. I still agree. I think Warnecke was incredibly insightful. Um, one thing that did get cut from the final paper is the Arlington Oak. Another big part, when I talk about the hillside... The Arlington Oak, which was this just massive, beautiful tree, you can still see pictures of it. Sadly, um, it came down in a storm a few years ago, and they did have to replace it. So I have never seen the Kennedy gravesite with the original Arlington Oak, but I will try to post some of the Olaf Dahlstrand renderings, which are quite remarkable. They show that as part of the landscape. So that was part of it. Part of that original mound and ellipse approaching the gravesite was to maintain the existence of that tree, which, like I said, unfortunately was um, was just decimated by a storm. There are a lot of things that got left on the cutting room floor. Um, you can see multiple versions, like when they originally had grass around the gravesite, and then they were like, wait a minute, it's Washington, we can't have grass. Um, the different forms of braziers. There were three or four different versions of them. I have different renderings of all of them. 
So it's one of the limits of a podcast is that there, there aren't great visuals which go along with this. And you could probably hear me flipping through the paper because I had to skip over a lot of pages that just had pictures on them. The other big thing was is that there was originally supposed to be a low curving wall behind the Kennedy grave site, which had the presidential seal on it. This is something that has actually been captured in other presidential grave sites that I've talked about. It was eventually nixed because they felt it disrupted the continuity looking up towards the Lee Custis mansion. It's interesting. So when I was getting ready to present this, one of the things that I didn't have was I didn't have great pictures of it. So when I drove from Atlanta up to Connecticut, where the conference was in 2018, I stopped at Arlington along the way. And that is the only time I've ever been to Arlington. So full disclosure, when I originally did this research, I had never been to Arlington National Cemetery. Had certainly seen it on TV. I had been to D.C. before. It's just not someplace that I ended up going. And it was hotter than the hell that day. I made it through, you know, security and everything else. And when you go into Arlington, the Kennedy gravesite is right there. It's impossible to miss. It's right in front of you. And I took my time experiencing it and walking up to it. And certainly if accessibility and the ability of the public to go there was their priority, I cannot overstate how accessible it is because it is literally right there. And you can see it even as you approach Arlington over the Arlington Memorial Bridge as you're coming up from like the large parking deck and the gift shop and all that stuff. But even still that whole idea of a contemplative experience, which I have walked (laughs) the labyrinth at Chart. I have walked several labyrinths. There are several of them right here in my neighborhood in Atlanta. The idea of a contemplative experience, it's very visceral. Being able to stand in that elliptical plaza and read the words of John F. Kennedy while looking out over the city of Washington, looking at that axis. And there are Dahl Strand renderings showing the axis of the Lee Custis Mansion, the grave site, the Arlington Memorial Bridge, the Lincoln Memorial. That's not something I'm making up. That is something that was a very conscious decision. Nothing happens by accident. I firmly believe that. And I know that I advocate for that a lot on the podcast. No, every design decision was intimately thought out. And when I was standing in that plaza reading the quotes and kind of taking it all in and taking photographs, as I got ready to approach the gravesite itself, I was standing at the bottom of the steps and trying to like stand back respectfully to let the group that was in front of me consider it and I heard a woman say very loudly well that's it like she was very disappointed by the Kennedy gravesite and I guess if you compare it to the Victorian style markers if you are looking for a massive obelisk or if you're looking for Grant's tomb yes you are going to be disappointed now I am inherently biased, I will say, as an architectural historian. I love mid-century modern design. And I know it's very trendy for everyone to say that, but I really do. I think the simplicity of something like Philip Johnson's Glass House or Farnsworth House, designed by Mies van der Rohe, I, I think that the simple, clean lines are very striking. 
it's not hard to design something that has lots of frills and bows. Certainly, the love affair that Victorian craftsmen had with jigsaws proves that. But to get something that is so simple yet so striking, I think is a greater challenge. And that's a personal opinion. I am not an architect myself. But there is something about the Kennedy Grave site. And I do agree that the eternal flame has a lot to do with that. But having considered a lot of different options, you know, they looked at a sarcophagus, they looked at flush gravesites. The Kennedy gravesite, I think, not only broke all of the previous rules, but it also having looked at a lot of gravesites, and you are free to go back to the episode that I just did on presidential libraries back in January, a lot of the graves that come after him, none of them can compare to his gravesite at Arlington, but they definitely take the broad strokes from it. John Carl Warnecke changed how presidential graves are designed. 100%. Don't let anybody tell you he didn't. And I mentioned this in the presidential episode, uh, the presidential library episode, that's (laughs) one of the struggles I constantly have in the gravestone community is that it's very difficult to get anybody to peer review my articles. Because nobody does contemporary grave design. And yes, something now that is more than 55 years old is considered contemporary grave design. But one of the few comments that I got from one of my reviewers was, you know, have you been to the Gerald Ford grave site in Grand Rapids? Which was one of the ones that I did talk about um, on the Presidential Libraries episode. And, you know, it's interesting At the time, I kind of like took a look at it and I was like, okay, this is not relevant to my research. I'm not going to put anything in there about it. But now that I have done the research and I have looked at it and I have considered it, no, no. The thoughtfulness, the consideration of materials, like none of it's there. The only one that I will say at least tries to maybe among the contemporary grave sites would possibly be... Dwight Eisenhower's just because of like the building that it's set in and the use of certain materials around it like that's the one that maybe comes close but the design is just not there and so while I can see that somebody who was coming looking for something grand and something elaborate would be disappointed it's not an equestrian statue it's not even an obelisk I think there is something to be said for the simplicity And there's something to be said if you understand just the amount of thought and the amount of care that went into particularly choosing the materials. That's what struck me, the contextual design. And I don't really give a great definition for contextualism, but it's the idea that design should be based on the content within which it exists. So perhaps the best example of this is Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water. If you have seen it, it is probably the most famous American private home, um, the vacation home of the Kaufman family located in Bear Run, Pennsylvania, southwest Pennsylvania, um, not too far from Morgantown where West Virginia University is. You know, Falling Water was built not looking at the waterfall but above the waterfall. And the organic design is meant to mimic the shapes of the waterfall. And everything is designed in a contextual way. 
contextualism is really hard to put your finger on until you understand that it is a type of design that looks to integrate with its environment. And I think one of the reasons that the Kennedy gravesite, you know, whether you agree it's striking or not, is it is something that is simultaneously contextual to Arlington and to New England. Even though it's physically in Arlington, it also, like, you could pick it up, transport it, and just lay it down in New England. That's not easy to do. And it's interesting because sometimes I'll look at a grave and I'll say, oh, geez, that's very northern, or that's very midwestern, or that's very southern. And it's because there are certain designs that do tie into regionalism. This is probably a little boring for people who are not interested in architecture and design, but I think it's important. After the burial of John F. Kennedy, obviously I've expressed just how big in the article the visitation increased. This did not abate at all. And there are some excellent photographs that were taken by contemporary newspapers showing just like the ridiculous lines of people just waiting to walk past the gravesite. That hadn't been done before. And the fact that now John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. We're talking almost 60 years ago. People still go to see it. Now, that's not to say that they don't visit other presidential graves, but there is just something about the Kennedy gravesite that draws them. And it's not just that he was assassinated. I think that we've moved beyond that because the fact is the people who remember the Kennedy assassination are in and of themselves aging out. So it's not just the connection with the assassination anymore. There's something more there. And as a result, we see the number of veterans who want to be buried at Arlington increase exponentially. They are going to tighten the regulations. They are going to definitely dial back who is allowed and not allowed to be buried there. Because prior to that, despite the presence of the Memorial Amphitheater, despite the presence of the Maine, despite the presence of the Tomb of the Unknowns, none of those things popularized it as much as the burial of John F. Kennedy there. It is also my personal opinion, and again, I could be wrong about this. I will fully admit that I am, if and when. This podcast will probably be long done when this happens, but I very much doubt that another president will be buried at Arlington. Taft and Kennedy, I think that's it. There will be Supreme Court justices, there will be generals, there will be senators... There will not be another Kennedy buried at, uh, another president buried at Arlington. Now, it is worth noting that all of the Kennedy brothers are now memorialized there. So both Robert Kennedy when he died in 1968, Ted Kennedy when he died in 2000, it's either 2009 or 2011. I'm blanking on when it was, um, when he died of a brain tumor. Um, and also there is a cenotaph to Joseph Kennedy Jr., um, John F. Kennedy's oldest brother, who was killed in combat in World War II, he also has a cenotaph there. It's kind of sad. It's tucked down at the end because you have JFK first, then RFK, then Ted Kennedy, and then poor Joe Jr. He's kind of like tucked under a tree. Um, I definitely took a picture when I was there just because I felt bad. Um, but all of the Kennedy brothers are now there um, on the slope below Arlington. But I just think that no president first of all the precedent for presidential library burials is so high also it's been a long time since we have had a president who 
was in the active military. So I think that the lack of association with active military also plays into that. And I'm going to talk more about that next week. It's worth noting that the Metzler administration under which the Kennedy burial happened, that's going to be something I do need to bring up next week because the superintendents of Arlington, particularly in the 50s and 60s, really were a big part of making the mechanization, which is what Arlington is known for today, a reality. Now, there will be some controversy about that later on, but it's worth noting that you know, between the burial of the World War II and Korea unknowns, which happened in 1958, and the burial of the Vietnam unknown, now Michael Blassie, in 1984, Arlington completely changes. And the Kennedy gravesite is the main reason for this, but also a lot of it has to do with the leadership and much of what we see in Arlington today is a result of that Metzler leadership that occurs in the mid-20th century. So that's one of the things that I'm going to cover next week as we wrap up our discussion of Arlington. So hopefully that wasn't too painfully boring. I'm right at an hour right now. Um, I did give like a fair 20 minutes of commentary on that, but hopefully you enjoyed that. I've had it kind of on the back burner for a long time. I don't like to toot my own horn, but I thought it would be an interesting way to explore something that is definitely a topic that needs to be explored. And I would hope that if you get the opportunity to visit Arlington, if you have never done so before, or if you do get the opportunity to go back after many years, that you perhaps have a little bit more appreciation for the Kennedy gravesite, even if it's not a grand obelisk or not some over-the-top monument, you understand that there was a unbelievable amount of research and design that went into it and that every decision was quite calculated nothing there happens by accident and maybe you can even point out some of the features to your friends and family um wow them with your knowledge of the kennedy gravesite as always if you are enjoying the podcast i would very much appreciate a five-star review on apple podcasts also subscribe Click that subscribe button. That way you automatically get episodes downloaded when they drop every Friday. Being subscribed helps me keep track of who's listening, where you're listening, all of those good things. It also helps both of those things to make me much more visible to other people who might be looking for cemetery-based content when they search. I share lots of exciting, extra fun stuff, uh, grave sites that I visit, um, weird little walks that I take, all sorts of things on the... Instagram and Facebook for the podcast, Tomb of the View podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. And as always, if you would like to reach out and talk to me for whatever reason, feel free to reach out at Tomb of the View podcast at gmail.com. Next week, I will be wrapping up my final section on Arlington. Hopefully you have enjoyed this ride. I know it's been quite intense, but until next week, I'm Liz Clappin and this is Tomb of the View.